0: Seventeen. If you please find the Gospel of John chapter 17, one of the most important chapters that I think we have in the Bible. I want you to imagine, if you can for just a moment, what it would be like if you could sit in on a conversation that was taking place between two almighty, omnipotent members of the Godhead. Imagine if you could listen in on that conversation. Do you think that you could understand what was being said? The Almighty God... Jesus, the Son of God, God the Father speaking to one another. Do you think that you could really understand what was being said between them? The Apostle Paul spoke about the wisdom and the knowledge of God, and he said that God's judgments and God's ways are past finding out. And I would suppose that if we could sit in on that conversation, that we would think that what they have to say, we couldn't understand. That it would be far beyond our ability. But as we come to John chapter 17 today, this is exactly what we're doing. We're listening in on a conversation where Jesus, the Son, is speaking to his heavenly Father. This is actually the most extensive conversation between two members of the Godhead that we find in all of the scriptures. And what we find in John chapter 17 is really not at all what we would expect. We expect it to be incomprehensible, and yet we find that this conversation contains very simple words. There are simple sentences and very understandable phrases This passage of Scripture is what I think we should call the real Lord's Prayer. In fact, this is a prayer that only Jesus could pray. And yet, what we find in Matthew chapter 6, where we normally call the Lord's Prayer, and I think all of you are probably familiar with that, what we find in Matthew chapter 6 is really not a prayer that Jesus could have prayed at all. It's not a prayer that he could pray. How many of you know the Lord's Prayer as we know it in Matthew chapter 6? How many of you know that? Just about everybody else. Could you recite that with me? Let's do that. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the glory forever. Amen. Did I miss a word? I did. Did I miss power? See, we all don't know it very well, do we? I've never been in a church where we, people recited the Lord's Prayer. You know, I've always been taught as I was growing up that Matthew 6 is a model prayer. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, and Jesus gave them this model prayer. But there's actually a line in this prayer that tells us that Jesus could not have prayed this prayer himself. And that line is this one where he says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus never had to ask for forgiveness. Jesus was the perfect son of God. He never committed any sin, and so he would never have to ask for forgiveness. So Matthew 6 is not really the Lord's prayer. It's a model prayer, and the prayer that the Lord actually prayed, one that only he could pray, is found right here in John chapter 17. And this is where Jesus is speaking person to person, intimately with his heavenly Father. Now today I want to talk to you about the petitions that Jesus makes in this prayer. It's not a prayer that we can pray. Only Jesus can pray this prayer. I'd like you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word, if you would, please. If there's any portion of Scripture that certainly deserves our reverence, it would be John chapter 17, where Jesus is speaking to the Heavenly Father. Now, we're not going to read all of the prayer today. We're just going to cover, in the sermon today, the first petition of Jesus' prayer. So look at John 17, beginning in verse number 1. It says, These words spake Jesus, and lift up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great passage of Scripture and how it is so packed with meaning. And Lord, we can't even express the very depths of the things that you spoke between yourself and the Heavenly Father. We just ask you, Lord, that you would just open our eyes of understanding today. Help us to learn something from your word. Teach us something and speak to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is a prayer that only Jesus can pray. And why is that? Well, we notice as we read those first few verses that Jesus prayed about authority over all flesh, and he spoke about giving eternal life to people who believe. And folks, we just simply don't have that power. We don't have the authority that Jesus had, and so we're not able to pray this prayer. And yet, as we look at this prayer, it's the most valuable one, I think, that was ever prayed in all of Scripture, and the most valuable that's ever been prayed in the history of the world, and as we read it, we see the words are simple, the sentences are very concise, the, the concepts are laid out very clearly before us, and yet what was spoken by Jesus is really not understood by the world today. And unfortunately, there aren't many Christians either who really understand what Jesus is saying. Now, as you know, I, I believe that the very best way that we can study the Bible is just go by chapter by chapter and book by book, and whenever we study the Word of God like that, it makes it just totally impossible for us to look over controversial passages. There are some things in the Bible perhaps that we'd like to leave alone. Maybe what we don't want to talk about them. But I'm determined today that I'm going to preach to you exactly what Jesus says in this prayer. Now this prayer is very direct. It's to the point. There are actually three petitions that Jesus makes in the prayer. First of all, he prays for himself. Then he prays for the 11 apostles. And then, folks, he prays for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he also prays for you. Now, in the message today, I only have time to talk about the first petition. Next week and the week after, we'll cover two more petitions that Jesus makes in the prayer. But I want you to pay very close attention today because what I have to say to you is not the normal, simple Sunday morning sermon that I I usually preach. So I want you to notice first today the first petition of this prayer, which is a self-prayer for past glory. We notice in the scriptures that Jesus prayed that he might be glorified as he once was. In verse number one, he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. So Jesus prayed for himself and he prayed that he would be glorified. And in that glorification, the heavenly father would also be glorified. And may I say to you this morning a point that you really need to get into your heart and into your mind, that the only way that you can give glory to God is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who receives the glory, and by giving glory to him, we then give glory to God. Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father. And so you'll never glorify God unless you give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus prays for his glory. How would he be glorified? Well, he tells us one way in verse number 2. He says, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So how is Jesus glorified? Well, we can say that he's glorified by giving eternal life. Christ is glorified because he gives eternal life. Now, I think that all of you would probably agree with me that eternal life is a very important concept for a Christian. I mean, how could you ever have joy? Uh, How could you have peace in your heart unless you know that by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that one of these days he's going to give you this eternal life? And this is one of the ways that Jesus is glorified because he gives eternal life to those who have been given to him. And then as the people receive this eternal life, one day they're going to go to heaven, they'll be with Jesus in glory, and forever they'll sing praises to the Lamb of God. In Revelation chapter 5, it says, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So one day all creation will glorify Jesus Christ. As I preached just a a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, that that Even if you are plunged into the darkness of hell by being an unbeliever in Jesus right now, someday you will acknowledge him. You will acknowledge the one to whom all power and glory belongs. But I want you to listen to me very carefully because the Bible tells us that we all have an eternal choice. There's an eternal choice for every person. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we read, For the wages of sin is death. The Bible teaches that all of us are sinners, we've broken God's law, and because of our sins, we've earned something. Now, we understand that concept. If you work for someone, you earn a wage, you expect to be paid. Well, the Bible says that as sinners, we earn a wage, and the wage that we earn is actually eternal death, separation from God. Now, the Bible's not primarily talking about physical death here. That comes along with it. But primarily, a person who is not a believer in Jesus Christ and every person born into the world comes that way. We have chosen eternal death as the way that we want to live. And eternal death means that we're going to go to a place that's called hell. So all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. And every single person has made their choice. And their choice is that they're against God. That's an eternal choice that all of us have made. So we've all chosen against God, and so therefore, all of us have chosen eternal death. But let's go back to Romans 6, 23, because I didn't read all of that scripture. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's gift is eternal life. Now, we understand a gift is something that you receive, And you may choose to remain on a path leading to spiritual death or you may choose to receive that free gift of eternal life. Now, I know that every person here would say, well, that's not a hard choice at all. You've given me the choice of eternal death and going to hell and and, and being there forever in the fires of hell. And you've given me the choice and say, well, you can go to heaven. You can live with Jesus in heaven forever and ever. That's not really a hard choice to make at all. Sign me up for that. I'm going. I'll make my choice. You ever wondered why that there are so many people in the world and that every person doesn't make a choice to go to heaven? You ever wonder why that there aren't more people signed up to go to heaven? Why is it that some people choose to go on in their sin and they're gaining these wages of eternal death? Why do they choose to live that way and go on that way and they never come to Christ for salvation? Well, I want to answer the question for you by telling you what eternal life is. Notice this statement on your listening sheet today eternal life is to know God through Jesus Christ. Now, listen to Jesus' words in verse number three. He says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, there the Bible actually gives us a definition for eternal life. You might want to underline that in your Bible today. Here's the definition. Knowing or having eternal life is to know God. And knowing God means giving up all other concepts of what you think that God is. Now, the Bible tells us that we can know God in certain ways. For instance, the scripture says that we can know God through the light of nature. I mean, we recognize that there is a creator God. We know that he exists. So we look at creation and we see that somebody must have made all of this. And so we know that we understand that there's a God. But this is not the kind of knowledge that Jesus is speaking about. He's, he's not talking about nature because nature will never lead you into a relationship with God. All that nature will ever do for us is actually give us a skewed view of who God is. Now, Paul tells us that what nature did for those who weren't among Israel, because he says in Romans chapter 1, he says, "...because that when they knew God, or they understood God through nature, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful." but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So do you see that? People saw God through nature, but they didn't glorify God simply because they understood that there is a creator. Creation clearly tells us there is a God, but without divine light no one will ever come to Jesus Christ. And our, our knowledge of nature only leaves us further condemned. So people naturally have the light of nature, but they abuse that light. Then the Bible also tells us that we can know God by learning the laws of God, by trying to be a good person, trying to be what God wants us to be, following his commandments, then we can learn a little bit about God that way. But that's not what Paul is speaking of either. Paul also addresses the fallacy of that notion in Galatians chapter 2. He says, "'Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified.'" So we can't know God through the light of nature or have a relationship with him through the light of nature. And we can't come into a relationship with God by doing good things and keeping all kinds of commandments. The only way that we're ever going to know God is through the revelation of Jesus Christ as our Savior and Redeemer. So you can only come to God in one way, and that's to change your mind about yourself, change your mind about sin, recognize that there's absolutely nothing good, nothing worthy that's in you, and you have to change your mind about God and place all of your dependence upon him. Now, that's what the Bible calls repentance. That's the doctrine of repentance. But folks, do you know this? Here is the sticking point. Repentance is actually the sticking point because the natural mind does not have the ability to implement all of these changes. You see, it's not just in, man, it's not in, in man's makeup and his natural makeup to suddenly change his mind and say, I'm going to start following God, and so now I'm going to choose heaven rather than go to hell. And so the gospel is preached from coast to coast. People hear it every day, and yet they turn their backs on it. They refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. They won't come to him. Now look at verse number 2 again. Here's the key. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he, Jesus Christ, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So all flesh, every person is under the curse and the dominion of sin, and only Jesus has the power, only he has the power to change the natural disposition from one of sin to salvation. Now, do you realize what would happen if you were given eternal life without being changed? I mean, if, if uh, you didn't repent and if you weren't changed by God, you know what eternal life would be like? To a person who's never been changed, eternal life simply amounts to time. I mean, it would simply be living forever and forever. Can you imagine what it would be like if you live forever and forever without being changed? If you went into the presence of God without being changed? And when the Bible says that here's what we're going to do, we're going to worship God around his throne forever and forever. Do you think that you would enjoy heaven without being changed? You know, you'd say heaven is boring. Wow, what a boring place to be. I mean, many of you can't even sit and listen to a 30-minute sermon. I mean, preaching from God's word is boring to you. And I don't know, you might be bored right now. Totally bored with what I have to say. How do I know that? I've been there and I've done that. I remember when I was little, my dad would preach a sermon and I'd sit there for 30 minutes and I'd be thinking, how in the world can a 30-minute sermon seem like eternity? I mean, when I'm watching Batman, it goes, time goes just like that. When I'm watching a football game, time's gone. Why is it that sitting and listening to a sermon seems to be so boring to us? So can you imagine what it would be like if you went to heaven without being changed and forever and forever, you just like listen to one long sermon, praising God all the time. Boy, that's a boring thing to do. And that's how people look at worshiping God. It's boring, boring. I want my fun right now. I'm a mover. I'm a shaker. I've got to have it now. All my fun. I'm busy about what I do. And that's why eternal life can't just mean time. Eternal life is also quality. It's a quality of life. Eternal life is knowing God right now through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's having a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, friends, when you are in a relation with Jesus, it's never boring. You're not going to be bored by Jesus. And when you get to heaven, you will be changed. And you'll enjoy that eternal life. So the only way that a person will ever choose eternal life is when God first chooses him and gives him the ability to believe the gospel. And that's how Christ is glorified. The Bible says that he alone is able to give eternal life and he gives it to those who are given to him by the Father. Now, how else is Jesus glorified? Well, secondly, he's glorified by completing his work. Notice verse number four. I have glorified thee on earth... I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. I don't suppose that there's any more misunderstood statement in this prayer than the one Jesus makes right there. Seems like a very simple statement. It is a very simple statement. Unless you have an ax to grind. I mean, unless you have a mixed-up conception of what Jesus' work is. Let me tell you what Jesus' work is. Jesus' work is to complete salvation. Not to save people in prospect. not, Not to put people simply into a salvable state. But Jesus' job is to finish salvation. Completing salvation means that he saves everybody that he intends to save. And if he doesn't do that, it's not completion, it's failure. I'm not going to develop that thought fully today. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. Right now, we're talking about glory. Christ is glorified in Jesus' work, or God is glorified in Jesus Christ as well. Now, there's some things that we can discover about the glory of Jesus Christ. First of all, Jesus' glory was covered by his humanity. It was covered by his humanity. Now, you might be a little bit confused about the word glory. It's a word we use all the time, but what does glory really mean? Well, there's actually a a very long etymology of this word in the Hebrew and the Greek, but in the Old Testament, many times when it uses the word glory... It means to give weight to something, to give honor to something, or to to recognize the importance of something. So the glory of God would be to recognize the worth of God because of all the uncommon attributes that He has. I mean, we think about God, that He's merciful, God is righteous, God's perfectly holy, God gives grace, and on and on and on. We can think about the the different attributes of God. And God finds worth, or we find worth in God because of those great attributes that He has. Now, when the disciples saw Jesus, they recognized his value as being God and possessing all of the attributes of God. So that's just another way of recognizing that Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus said, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what he meant by that was, I have all the same attributes of God. So one of the ways that he... he he's saying that he completed God's work is through his ministry, through the things that he did on this earth. The uncommon things that Christ did that showed us that he was God, that he was able to do all these things, that he was God. But that can't be particularly what Jesus is saying in this part because in verse number five, he talks about the glory that he had with the Father before the world was ever created. So this glory can't be related to his earthly ministry. Now, in other words, what I'm trying to say to you, if Jesus was... was praying for his glory to be given back to him, he couldn't be talking about all the attributes that he has with God because the Bible very clearly tells us that when Jesus was on this earth, he was God. He had all the attributes of God, so he didn't give up any portion of being God. When Jesus was right here on the earth, he was God in the flesh, and that means that he possessed all the attributes that God has. And so when Jesus prayed that his glory would be restored... He couldn't be praying about those particular kinds of attributes. So he's not talking about glory in that way. So what does he mean by glory? I mean, there must be something else. I mean, something that we readily recognize in the way that we may think of glory. And indeed, there is another way that Jesus is talking here. In the Jewish mind, a display of God's glory was accompanied by light. And this would be a light that was so brilliant and so dazzling that no one could look into that light. There's a very graphic example of this that we find in the Old Testament. That's when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. You remember the story? Moses went up to speak with God, and when he came into the presence of God, there was the bright, shining light. And Moses, being in the presence of God, had that glory revealed to him in that way. And the Bible says that when he came down from the mountain, that his, faith shone, his face shone. I mean, this brightness was all about him. He was so bright that the people said, cover yourself up, Moses. Cover up your face because we can't see you. We can't get into that light. Folks, Moses had a suntan that wouldn't quit. I mean, it was shining out there. So that's one way. I mean, that's the light that the Bible speaks of. Then there's also the light spoken of when the presence of God was in the tabernacle and in the temple. Whenever God was in residence with the people of God there, with his people in the tabernacle and the temple, there was a special light that glowed on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. That's called the Shekinah. Later in in, uh, Hebrew writings and Greek writings, it's called the Shekinah. And so whenever I speak of the Shekinah glory... That's what I'm talking about. That special light, that presence of God that was in the tabernacle and in the temple. Now here you see we're starting to get a picture of this first petition of Christ's prayer. Christ prayed for his past glory. And so he's praying for this glory that he had with the Father all the way back when the world began. And back then, this glory that Christ had was not veiled, it wasn't hidden. But now Jesus came in the flesh And that glory that he had was veiled by his human flesh. So it was covered up by his humanity. Now, in verse number 5, he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so in his humanity, in his flesh, this brilliant light of Christ was covered up. Now, that was absolutely necessary. It had to be covered. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, "...and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory." The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this glory is in Jesus Christ, but the glory is covered. Now, if that glory hadn't been covered, then when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph would never have been able to look into the face of their little bitty baby. Just like this little baby that we, that we had today. If, if that was the Son of God and, and you could see His glory... Carrie and Adam, they would never be able to look at their little baby. They couldn't get into that light because of the glory of Christ. And so his glory had to be covered up. When when Christ was born, those shepherds could not have come down from the hillside and visited the manger if Jesus' glory had not been covered. They couldn't approach that light. His disciples, as they walked with Jesus when he got older, they never would have been able to commune with him and have fellowship with him because they can't get into that light of the glory of Jesus Christ. So do you see what I'm saying? His glory had to be covered up. It had to be veiled in his flesh. And now Jesus is praying that at some time this glory will be revealed. It'll be unfolded again, unveiled so that people can see it. Now, I want you to notice, though, that while he's still in his flesh that something else happens. Jesus' glory was uncovered by his miracles. The fact that there was glory in Christ was uncovered by the miracles that he did. Now, remember, John wrote this book by using seven of Jesus' miracles. And in these seven miracles, he shows us that Jesus is really the Christ. You remember what that first miracle was? It's back in the second chapter. The one that John uses there, it was when the water was turned into wine. Now, I want you to listen to what John wrote in that second chapter. He says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. So every miracle that Jesus performed uncovered this fact that glory is in him. Now, do you remember this one? This is not in John. It's in the book of Mark chapter 5. I want you to turn there if you would, please. We're going to read a little bit about this. In Mark chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this particular miracle. Uh, John doesn't write about it. But let's read what Mark has to say. Mark, Mark uh, uh, Matthew, and Luke record it. But let's look at what Matthew, or rather Mark, says in verse number five. This is in verse twenty-five. Mark five, verse number twenty-five. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was nothing better, but grew worse, but grew worse. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, you go to the doctor, and you paid, you paid, you paid, you've been to doctor after doctor after doctor, and you're not any better? That's what happened to this woman. She spent a fortune going to different doctors trying to get this problem resolved of her health. So finally, she gave up on the doctors, and she decided to go to Jesus. Look at verse 27. And when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, or in the crowd behind, and touched his garment... For she said, If I I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth and said unto her, Daughter, this is Jesus, says, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now, do you see what happens in verse number 30? And Jesus, immediately knowing that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? Now do you see what happened here? When this woman touched Jesus' clothes, some of the glory, his virtue, his glory went out of him and that woman was healed. In another time, we have an example of the disciples seeing the glory of Jesus. Jesus took them up on the mountain. The Bible says that he was transfigured before them. In Matthew 7, it says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up unto a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. And his raiment was as white as light. So you see, there's that glory of Christ. There's that brilliant light. And Christ's glory was uncovered. In every one of his miracles, some of that glory of Christ, Christ was revealed. Now, it was hidden by his humanity. But the fact that glory was residing in Jesus came out whenever he performed a miracle. Now, folks, whenever you uncover some of the glory of Jesus, good things happen. Trust me on that. You uncover the glory of Jesus and good things will happen. Now, I want you to notice something else though. Number three is that Jesus' glory was recovered at the cross. So his glory was covered by his humanity. It was uncovered by his miracles, but it was recovered at the cross. Now, I don't mean that it was covered over again. I don't mean that it was obscured, but now it's revealed this fountain of life, the glory of Christ, became opened up at the cross. How is it revealed? Well, finally, we can now see who Jesus really is. If you go back to the first chapter of John, I preached a message from one scripture there, John one twenty nine, where John the Baptist spoke about Jesus. And it says, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You know what happened on the cross? The very last lamb, the very last lamb that needed to be sacrificed was sacrificed on the cross. And that was Jesus Christ. He was the lamb of glory. Now, thousands of lambs of sacrifice had been offered. I think that God killed a lamb when he clothed Adam and Eve way back in the Garden of Eden. Abel brought uh, the lambs of his flock for a sacrifice. When Abraham took Isaac up on, on Mount Moriah, what was it that took his place? It was a ram. It was a lamb that God substituted in the place of Isaac. On the night of the Passover, it was a lamb that was killed and the blood was smeared all over the door for protection from the death angel. In the tabernacle offerings, there were lambs that were killed. In the temple, dedication, thousands upon thousands of lambs were killed. Down through the centuries, they, they sacrificed perhaps even millions ...of lambs in anticipation that Jesus Christ, the final lamb, would come. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem just one week before he was to be crucified... ...he was accompanied by thousands of lambs that were brought in for the Passover feast. But when Jesus went to the cross, friends, he was the real lamb. He was the precious lamb of glory. The lamb without blemish and without spot. He was the lamb who brought glory who brought God glory at the cross. Look at verse number 4 of our text. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. That statement was made in prospect of the death that Jesus would die on the cross. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was hanging there? He said, it is finished. And God received glory and Jesus received his glory through the cross. When he surrendered his life, he gave his spirit back to God. And now what's happened to Jesus? Do you know? Now he's exalted. Where is he now? He's right back there with, with that glory that he had once before. That's what he prayed for. So he accomplished at the cross redemption for everybody who believes. And these are the ones that he intended to save. And his glory is accomplished by their salvation. So where is he now? Where is Jesus now, and what does Jesus look like now? Now, they couldn't see him because his glory was covered up. But what does he look like now? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that he doesn't look like the pictures that we see. He doesn't look like he's with long, soft brown hair and blue eyes. He's not like that. I mean, who, who ever saw a Jew who looked like that? That's not what Jesus looks like. But what does he look like now? What well, do you know that John. The writer of the Gospel of John was actually able one time to see what Jesus looks like in his glory. It's found in the book of Revelation when John was given this special revelation. In Revelation 1 verse 14, he saw Jesus and it said, "...his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And he had his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Can you imagine that? Coming into the presence of the Son of God, and it says his countenance was like the sun shineth in his strength. You ever gone out in a, in a bright summer day like today or a spring day and looked up into the sky and tried to stare at the sun? You can't do it. Well, imagine if if we didn't even have the atmosphere to filter out some of the sun's rays and you stood right there looking at the sun. Would you be able to stand in the brilliance of the sun? You can't do it. And so John says, I fell at his feet as dead. And friend, I'll tell you, when you come into the presence of the glory of the son of God, you won't be able to stand. You'll fall at his feet as dead. And so this is what Jesus prayed for. His first petition is a prayer that he might be glorified. And friends, when Jesus went to the cross and he paid it all there, when he perfectly finished it all, when he gave eternal life to his own, Jesus was glorified. And right now he's in glory. Now I want you to notice the last statement today. I've only only covered one of Christ's petitions. We're going to come back and talk about the others later. But I want to leave you today with this thought. Christ is our glory. Brother Dalton sang about that just a moment ago. That's why I asked him to sing this song. I will glory in the cross, in the cross, lest his suffering all be in vain. I will weep no more for the cross that he bore. I will glory in the cross. Friend, I want you to understand that if you believe in Jesus, there is no shame in the cross. The cross was not a place of doom and defeat. The cross was a place that symbolizes life and liberty. It's freedom from the dominion of sin. It's victory over death and hell. And I want to ask you, have you experienced that victory? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you been changed by Him? Have you been brought from death into life? Well, if you know Christ, He is your glory. And He's the only way that you'll ever see glory. Paul said, but God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you don't know him, you need to trust him today. Do you see why John 17 is such an important chapter in the Bible? The glory of Jesus Christ. And the only way that you'll ever see his glory is if you put your faith and your trust in him. I hope that you'll do that today. Trust him, and I promise you, you will see the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, for the glory of the Lamb. I ask you, Lord, that if there's any person here today who's not yet seen the glory of Jesus, that you would put it into their heart to come and trust you for salvation, and that glory will be revealed. I thank you, Lord, for Christians here in this auditorium today, those who know you, whose hearts rejoice because they know that day of glory is coming. I ask you, Lord, to speak to their hearts. Continue to strengthen us and abide with us, Lord, as we abide in you. Bless this invitation today. May we see Jesus in all things, high and holy and lifted up. And Lord, may we put our trust in you and glory in that cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we